Sentinels of Freedom is a national nonprofit organization that supports severely wounded post 9-11 veterans complete their higher education with its Bridge for Education scholarships. Veterans receive comprehensive personalized support, financial assistance, financial planning, and mentoring to achieve success in their post-military careers. We treat this as an investment, not a charity. What they'll bring to communities and the economy across our nation in their after-service careers is an invaluable fact and our return on investment. Our donors can take great pride in the fact that they are helping these veterans who served our nation honorably and sacrificed so much to reach their objective of self-sufficient lives. Now, here's Mike Conklin, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Sentinels of Freedom Scholarship Foundation. Good afternoon. This is Mike Conklin, chairman and CEO of Sentinels of Freedom. You're listening to our podcast today that we call Veterans Never Stop Serving, which is a reality that goes back to the first wars that we were in, the Piacot Indian War, and then the French and Indian Wars, then the Revolutionary War, Civil War, on and on. Veterans come home and they never stop serving our nation and our community through the experiences that they have, which are just incredible. The majority of them all end up at some point after their service getting involved in volunteer work to make their communities better. And so that's where the motto comes from, veterans never stop serving. So with 700 plus Sentinels, as we call the people that have gone through our program across the nation, these stories are incredibly inspiring. And so that's the goal of this podcast is to share these stories with you. And we hope that it inspires you. We hope that uh, it gives you a better vision of what our veterans do in our communities. And America really does love our military and our veterans. They just don't know what they do. And so this is a way to kind of make it a little more personal. We hope you share this with your friends and family uh, and enjoy it as much as we enjoy doing it. Uh, I've uh, had a, a very strong personal experience with all of them. And one of them is my good friend, Captain John Arroyo, United States Army, retired. John was an Army Special Forces soldier, lives in San Antonio now. He served 20 years and was shot, not in Iraq or Afghanistan, even though he had several deployments to those countries. He was shot in the Fort Hood event, whatever you want to call it, um, walking through a parking lot. And I think most people remember that event. It was horrible. Several, I think 20 people were shot that day and for no good reason. And so, John, welcome to our podcast, and I, I like to say we'd like to hear a little bit from you. I try to listen, uh, grow big ears in these things, and let you tell your story. So, good morning and yeah, or good afternoon when you're in Texas. I'm in California, and uh, it's just great to see you. I've been following your progress and your public speaking and your motivational public speaking, and I'm just uh, extremely proud of you uh, for all the things you're doing. You could just go home and sit on the board and not get involved at all. But here you are volunteering and inspiring people uh, to do good things in their lives. So thanks for coming on and I'll throw it over to you. Well, first of all, I just want everyone to know that I am a Sentinel and I'm proud to be a Sentinel. I went through this wonderful program, which I'm sure that you'll hear more about here as we progress. But get involved as well. I just challenge all the listeners to just find out what Sentinels of Freedom is doing, what, what they're about, and how they're inspiring veterans to continue to serve through education. And so thank you for that. Well, Mike, you said it, I was in a Green Beret, and I, I believe like a Marine. It's once a Marine, always a Marine. Once a Green Beret, always a Green Beret. Once a soldier, always a soldier. And that's for me. I am a Green Beret. But I was thinking about this and I'm putting some notes together for a speaking engagement I got in DC next week. And one of the things that we're talking about that they have me talking about is they're talking about embracing change through transformation and transition, right? There's so many people going that are looking for change in their life through transition and transformation. And so my topic is individual change. Mm -hmm. 
one of the things that I want to, what I want to mention as uh, I tell a little bit about my story and, and I'm going to share this next week, which is why it's on the tip of my tongue, right. but special forces command didn't put inside me what was already there. What they did, like the forging process, right? We watched that show forged in fire. Yeah. Right, when they take this piece of steel and they put it in the fire and they pull it out of the fire and they hammer on it and they put it back in the fire and they pull it out of the fire. And it's a beautiful, exhausting, and it's a violent process. Mm-hmm. And so what Special Forces Command did is they took what was already inside of me and they forged it into something that was beautiful and then ultimately lethal. Yeah. Well, it's a great analogy. In fact, one of the best I've heard. I mean, of course, it transfers to all branches and all units. That's exactly the benefit, I guess, of one of the best benefits of military service. That's true. And it, like your voice, these men are out on the front lines and they're continuing to advance what the military is doing. But where did they get that warrior's heart? Where did they get that never quit attitude? Dan, I'm not, hey, did you know I'm getting promoted? Hey, Dad, I'm, I'm going to go apply for this organization and it's people don't talk about them. How did they get that? Well, the military didn't put that in there. It was established somewhere else. And for me, in my life, and this is where I want to take our listeners to, for me, my, my life started when my dad died when I was a really young boy. And I was never affirmed at home. I never heard from my father, you're my son and who I am well, please. I love you. Let's yeah. go work on the car together. Son, go grab your mitt. We're going to go throw the ball. I never got any of that. So my life became a series of seeking affirmation, looking for approval. And I ended up having a really good family, a really good grandmother and a really good mother. And I'm here today because there were some ladies that came alongside me, even though I had men in my life, they weren't my dad. Mm. And that was a big deal for me. And, and I had men, but they weren't my dad. And there's something that happens in a young boy's life when his daddy can look at him and say, son, I'm proud of you. Yeah. And so my grandmother and my mother, they began to just speak into my life. They began to do things that they would encourage me. Well, my grandmother did something that was probably where the heart came from. She prayed for me. Mm. She was the woman that she had a relationship with God, with her creator. And I didn't know him back then. I just knew grandma. Mm. And so grandma, I'm here as the evidence of a young four foot woman then it just took me before the, the kingdom of heaven. And so as a young boy, because I didn't hear affirmation in my home from my dad, I went seeking it my entire life. And I would kind of say probably the best way to put it, it's almost like if you have an orphan heart, like there's something there, you're always looking for something, someone that maybe is like an orphan. They're always looking for that love of a mother, love of a father. And that's what I was looking for. I was constantly looking for affirmation what does that look like today? Let me give you a modern term for that, Mike. It would be called chasing likes, right? So you grab your phone and you snap a photo and you put it up on social media and maybe you put a little thing next to it and you wait for someone to start liking that, someone to start liking it. And you're looking for that affirmation. And then what happens is those likes become approval. Mm those likes be start becoming your approval. And so as a young boy, I began to look for approval and the approval I was looking for, the people that I gave the authority of my affirmation to were my knuckleheaded friends in California where I grew up on the streets of Los Angeles. Yeah. So even though I had a good home, I gave the affirmation process because my daddy wasn't there. I gave it to my knuckleheaded friends. And so I grew up in Los Angeles in the eighties and nineties. And so it was Tony Hawk skateboarding early in the 80s and it was great. And then all of a sudden in the 90s, like it was almost like the atmosphere changed and this gangster rap came on scene and it was F the police and blah, 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 blah. And then gangs became prevalent. And I remember my friends who I gave my affirmation authority to, they began to think gangs were cool. So how was I going to get their likes? How was I going to get their likes? I had to do what they thought was cool. Hmm. So at seventh grade, I'm jumped into a gang in Los Angeles. Mike, by ninth grade, I'm a teenage father. By 12th grade, 
I do methamphetamines for the first time. I tell people, how many of you have ever been wounded by people that you've trusted? Hmm. Right here, multiple times. The person that loved me, someone that said, hey, try this, smoke this, drink that. There's so many people today that have been wounded because somebody told them, try this, Mm. smoke that. And those are the people that love them. And I'm not saying the person that loved me, that I wasn't a bad influence on him. I was equally as bad influence, but that person was a family member of mine. And I know friends today that have never recovered because someone that told them that they loved them, asked them to try something and they never recovered from it. As a young boy, my sister saw right through the lies. And we know this, right? Because we deal with veterans. We deal with, we work with veteran community or you do more more so than I do. But when someone has an addiction in their life, the world sees it. But the only person that's truly deceived is the person that has the addiction because everyone looks, sees right through it. And that's what happened for me. My sister saw right through the addiction. Mm-hmm. I thought I was, I thought I was hiding it pretty well. She saw right through it, especially people that love you. They'll see right through it. They know who you are. So my sister said, Hey, look, we see the addiction and you need to do something. You need to get out of here. You're going to be a loser the rest of your life. I said, well, what am I going to do? She said, you need to join the military. I said, no way. I'm not joining the military. She said, well, let me tell you something, young man, you're going to come and live with me and you're going to sleep on my couch and I'm going to watch you. Here's what I realized though, Mike, I realized that my grandmother's prayers, that my sister became the action, the hands and feet to my grandmother's prayers. Mm. And so as I slept on my sister's couch, trying to hide the methamphetamine addiction, but what would a methamphetamine addicts do? They stay up all night and they sleep all day. So my sister, she began, if I stayed, if I slept longer than eight in the morning, she would take a jug of water and she would pour it on my face. And so she began to waterboard me on my, on her couch before I even joined the military. (laughs) Good for her. Yeah. So I said, let's go talk to this recruiter. So we go see the army recruiter and this guy's a used car salesman, man. I mean, he's just, and I said, Hey, well, what am I going to, I'm interested in the military. I'm interested in, in getting some transition because I need a transformation in my life. Like what I'm going to talk about next week, I need a transformation in my life. And so he says, you know what? Why don't you take that ASVAB? I took the ASVAB. This is 1998 at the time. I take the ASVAB and I fail it. You got to score a 30. I scored a 29. I go back, I think six weeks later and the recruiter tells me, he says, hey, when you take the test again, don't leave nothing blank. I'm like, okay. So I take the test again. I leave nothing blank. And this time, Mike, I was Space Force material. I went back there and I mean, if John Arroyo was ready to build rockets, this time he took the test. Yeah. I, I scored a 31. Okay. <laughs> I scored a 31 on a test that you need a 30. I was like, oh, I think they give you points for putting your name on the paper. I must have stalled my name right there or something. <laughs> so now this is, just so the listeners know, 98 was pre-war. That's pre-war. But nobody had a clue that we would be getting into a war in 201. Nope. nope. And the, and what was happening is Kosovo. So the only thing that was happening was right. like some Kosovo deployments. And so there wasn't much going on. And so I I end up making it and I tell the recruiter, look, I, I just need discipline. I'm just looking for some discipline and a skill. I'm not staying 20 years. I'm going home after three years with, my, with a skill and some discipline and some health care for my son, right? Because now I had a little boy. I said it at ninth grade. I, had a, had a, yeah. I was a teenage father. But I was giving my son what I had received at the time, which was nothing. Yeah. So I tell the recruiter, hey, look, get majority of the men in my life are truck drivers. How about I, do you have a job as a truck driver? And he said, we sure do. He said, but son, it's not truck driver. It's motor transport hopper. And I said, oh, okay. Truck driver. I end up at the 82nd Airborne Division, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Let me share a funny story. Here's, here's, I'm going to give you the first funny story in the military. Okay. This is John Arroyo showing up in AIT, Advanced Individual Training, right after basic training. So I go to Fort Leonard Wood and the class that's getting ready to graduate truck driving school right before us, it's called 88 Mike. 
motor transport operator. So this class gets ready to graduate and they get their orders and they're all going to Korea. 90% of the class is going to Korea. Well, when you're a 20 year old kid and you've never been away from home and you really didn't academically, you weren't hitting on all cylinders and probably because it was a lot of maturity I still had to do. But I looked at that class and I said, I am not going to Korea. I said, I need to come. I need to figure out a way to get out of going to Korea because I assumed that I was going to go to Korea just like that class. Yeah. So the drill sergeant walks in one day and he says, who wants to go airborne? He said, if you go airborne, he said, you're likely going to stay in the United States and there's a 90% chance you're going to end up at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Well, John Arroyo didn't graduate junior high. She did to get through high school. Let, let me be honest. Let me let your listeners know who John Arroyo was. Because I chased after likes, yeah. not academics as a young kid. I didn't graduate junior high. They just passed me along. I guess they didn't want a 21-year-old eighth grader with a beard. <laughs> and then... I get into high school and I have to take summer school. I, I didn't cross an academic stage in high school or junior high and in high school. I didn't get to graduate with everybody else. So I go in summer school and the teacher's assistants gives me the answers of the test. And that's what happens. And that's, so I cheated to get through high school. So here I am now. And I don't know geography. I'm not that good at geography. So when the drill sergeant says that Fort Bragg, North Carolina, I said, okay, I knew that North Carolina was somewhere on this side of the United States. Yeah. I knew it was in the lower 48s and it wasn't Korea. So John Arroyo says, hey, I got a plane right here, drill sergeant. I'm going to, I volunteered for airborne school. My knees shake when I walk up the ladder. Better love <laughs> right. jumping out of airplanes. Right. So here, so fast forward, it's graduation time and everybody's starting to get their orders. And I start laughing because I'm just assuming that everybody's going to end up in Korea. But I had a plan. Mm -hmm. Mike, you want to know where everybody went to 90%? No. Why? Uh, oh, shit. Don't ever volunteer. Right. So John Arroyo shows up at the 82nd Airborne Division as the rest of his class she goes to Hawaii. Right. And in 1998, December of 98, I signed into the 782nd Main Support Battalion there on Fort Bragg. It's the, the way the 82nd is formed today is different than it was then. Now they got brigade combat teams. They, back then they didn't. So I was a part of the main support battalion and I show up there and I tell people, Hey, you know what I, that I found that I didn't have to look for anymore. That mm -hmm. discipline that I was, that I needed. My sister was so hoping that I would find and grandma was praying for, Oh, John Arroyo bound. Oh, Sarge and Oh, Sarge hooked me up. I have to tell my wife, I said, honey, if I ever come up missing, just go to Fort Bragg and swab the ground because my DNA is up low for that place. <laughs> so I'm on Fort Bragg, North Carolina, 1998. And over some time, I began to see these Army Rangers and Green Berets because we know that Fort Bragg, North Carolina is home of special operations. I see, I hear about Delta Force operators. I don't see them. I don't mm. see them, but I hear about them. But I see these Army Rangers and Green Berets. And Mike, here's what happens again. Remember those likes that I was chasing? Remember right. that affirmation that I needed? Well, it, it hides itself. That orphan heart can manifest itself even in a military uniform and it hides in a spirit of core, yeah. right? So, so when I tell people, I want to be a Green Beret, that's what I started doing. I started telling people that I wanted to be a Green Beret. Why? Because everybody's eyes, when they saw those Green Berets, they lit up. They were like, those guys are cool. Well, what did I need people to tell me? I need people to affirm me. So I started telling people that I was going to be a Green Beret. I had no plans on becoming a Green Beret. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know the extent of what Green Berets did. But you know what I did know is I knew that everybody looked up to them. And that's what I wanted people to do to me. Yeah. So one day, I have a friend that walks up to me. He had been to Green Beret selection. And he says, hey, why don't you go be a Green Beret or shut your mouth? And I'm like, okay, well, it's put up or shut up time. So September 10th, 2001, John Arroyo starts selection and assessment to try out to be a Green Beret. And September 11th, 2001, they pull us in the classroom the very next day in Camp McCall. And they pull us in the classroom. And they say, today we're now a nation at war. Well, nobody believed him, Mike. Yeah, we thought it, we thought it was an exercise. That's right. We thought as part of the scenario, they were going to 
put us out in the middle of the woods naked or something. But then the colonel stops and with a somber face looks at us and says, today we're now a nation at war. And if you want to be a part of what's going to happen the next few years, you're in the right place at the right time. Well, every army ranger, every 101st, 82nd Airborne, every 18th Airborne Corps soldier wanted to leave because we didn't want our units to leave us. And the colonel said, sit down. So I make it all the way to the end of that selection process, 24 days. And they pull me in, they pull me in this boardroom and they say, John Royal, we're, we're kind of concerned about your academics. If you want to be a Green Beret or you want to try out to be a Green Beret, you're going to have to come back. And so Mike, essentially what that colonel told me was, John, you're not smart enough. Mm. So here I go, Mike, I, I, my life started out with no daddy. Then I begin to, I fail. In junior high, I failed in high school. I failed the ads that I've been in. This colonel looks at me and says, John, you're not smart enough. And I began this failure mentality that, that, that kind of grew inside of me. That became my identity. And I, over time, picked up this, I would say, test anxiety. Like anytime I sat down, I was already, ex- I already had beat myself mentally and I was already expecting to fail because what did John Arroyo do every other time? He failed. He failed almost everything academically and I wasn't hitting on all cylinders. So I leave there, walk out with my tail between my legs, but yet there's some people that were cheering me on because, hey, not everybody even tries out to be a Green Beret. And I go back a year later, I go back in 2002 and I get selected this time. Mike, I don't know what I did different, um, but I get selected. I think I did better on the land map portion and maybe yeah. on the academic portion as well. And I get selected. I ended up in the Q course in 2003 and one June, 2004, I signed into third special forces group and I sit across from my battalion sergeant major, second battalion He's looking at me and he says, John, we're going into war. You got 15 days to get your family in order. Yeah. And he says, we're going to go in there and we're going to do as much destruction as we can. So you don't got to go back there in 10 years. That was my end brief as a young staff sergeant sitting across from my sergeant major. Oh, but Mike, there's so much that your listeners need to hear at this point. My first anxiety attack was in Afghanistan in 2004 when I showed up in the Special Forces Detachment. And it wasn't because I was going to face the enemy. It was because I was this former truck driver with this failure mentality, now coming into one of the most elite commando units in the U.S. And I never wanted them to ask me a question. And these guys are meat eaters. If they catch a weakness inside you, they're going to expose it and they're going to dig it out. And that's what they did. And so every morning we had a team meeting and I never wanted them to ask me a question. So what I did is I would have anxiety attacks before every morning meeting. My heart would start pounding because I didn't want to go in those meetings. Eventually they worked with me and my team sergeant was a good team sergeant. Most people would have fired me because I was such a green beret. Again, I came from truck driver land. I didn't come from the infantry. Mm-hmm. And uh, but here's what happened, Mike. I go home after deployments and I, now I got two deployments and then I got three deployments. But what was happening is I was taking what was happening in deployments and I was taking it home, but I was also mixing it with alcohol. Mm. So I wasn't addicted to methamphetamines, but I did a little bit of what daddy did, right? My dad was an alcoholic. He died of cirrhosis of the liver. That's how my dad died. And people think to themselves, hey, my kids are too young. They don't know what I'm doing. Friends, let me tell you something. You will impart to your children good or bad. Not everybody. I mean, I had a choice. I didn't have to turn out like my father, but just for some reason I did. And I began to take this alcoholism on. And when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, we were told, Mike, we were told that we were the most physically fit alcoholics. And we wore it like a badge, like we were proud of it back then. Mm-hmm. But here I am, I come home from war and I'm mean and I'm angry and I'm a drinking and I'm over drinking. And I didn't beat my family, Mike. I never put my hands on my family. But you know what I could do is I could cut them down real good with my tongue. Mm-hmm. I, my wife, she couldn't do it right. She walked on eggshells. My children were the same way. I came home. I brought discipline with me. And you know what I also brought with me? The stress that I hadn't released from that those anxiety attacks and things like that. And it was coming out in my home. So during that time, my kids were young teenagers and they started getting on trouble themselves. And I, I took a second job 
while I was in the military. I started selling cars at CarMax. I started working in battalion. I started work selling cars at CarMax because I went to buy a truck and, and the gentleman af- offered me a job. And I took this second job and I didn't even need it. I was like E6, E7 at the time. And I take the second job so I can make $100 more a week. Hmm. My wife is a nurse working 7A to 7P. She's doing her part. But now I'm working two jobs and I have teenagers at home. Hmm. Mike, you want to know who was raising my kids? Because it wasn't me. It was the world raised my kids. What? Because I was an absent father. And then I would drink. And then when they would get on trouble, I blamed them for my absence. And then I blamed my wife. And so everything was about everybody else and never about me. And during that time, my wife attempted suicide twice. My wife is a two-time suicide survivor. Mm. She lived through this time frame, but we had, I have to tell people, but grandma was praying. That's the only thing that I, Mike, that's the only thing I can tell you that, that, that saved my wife and saved me. And so 2009, we hit rock bottom. And what happens is we go to a party Friday night and maybe this never happened to you, but I bet you some of your listeners, they could probably relate to this. You ever get a phone call the next day that says, do you remember what you did yesterday? So I get one of those phone calls that says, Hey, do you remember what you did yesterday? What I did is I had told myself, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to control my alcohol. I'm no longer drinking. So here's what we do. We white knuckle it. We try to do it out of our own strength. I'm not going to drink tonight and I'm going to do it out of my own will. Our will's not strong enough. This flesh right here, you see this body, this flesh has cravings and desires are stronger than anything that we can control. It wants what it wants and it likes what it wants and it doesn't care whether you want it or you don't. So I get that phone call. And at that moment, I felt like I hit rock bottom and we walked into a church. 2009, we walked into a church right outside Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and we drove our brokenness with us. And over a couple of years, we began to, the transformation and the transition process to somewhat of a better life. 2011, I applied to a an officer program where you go from enlisted to officer. And this is an opportunity that I never thought I would get, right? Because remember, I have had this failure mentality my entire life. I saw myself as a loser, a cheat, a thief. I mean, I didn't see myself as someone that was going to succeed and then succeed academically. But what happened is I had, I had hit 10 years in the military and I already had six years in special forces, seven years in special forces. And I was like, okay, I've been on a mobility team. I've been on a door kicking team. I've been on a special project team. But how am I going to feed my family later? Because I don't think anybody's going to pay me to jump out of airplanes. I don't think anybody's going to pay me to chase bad guys up mountains anymore. So I began to speak to the warrant officers and the officers. And I said, what is life like in your career field? And do you think I got what it takes? Because one day I'm going to have to feed my wife and no one's going to pay me to do all those things I just explained. So I applied to this officer program and I get accepted. And Mike, you talk about anxiety attack. I mean, I was scared, so scared because now I was proficient at being a Green Beret. I could shoot, move and communicate and I could do it well because I now had experience. But now I was going to go to college and I was going to write papers for a living. And my family, the dependency of what they needed for me is now going to be determined on how good I did in college. Oh, I was freaking out. But thank God I had a grandmama. Hmm. So I make it all the way through and I graduate college and I become an army officer and I go to the medical corps. And I wasn't a medic, but I became a medical service corps officer so that I could be logistics or administration, something like that. And I always, one of the reasons I, I chose medical is because medical is everywhere. So if you ever need to feed your family, you can go anywhere in the world and there'll always be a medical job. So I told my branch manager, I said, I don't want to go to Fort, like I've been on Fort Bragg for 15 years, my entire career. And I know what's going to happen. You're going to send me back to the 82nd Airborne Division because I got airborne wings and because I'm a Green Beret. But I assumed that those young lieutenant, young lieutenant rangers and captains, they, 
a Green Beret shows up in their formation and every day for me becomes a selection event. You could never have a bad day because those guys are going to say, let's see if we can shoot better than the Green Beret. Let's see if we can run faster than him. And so I said, Let, let's go somewhere else. So we end up going to Port Hood. Uh, it's known as the great place. Mm-hmm. And we get there November of 2013, November 2013. And so we get there. It's a great opportunity. And so Mike, I'm assuming that these soldiers are going to challenge me. Like, I'm assuming that they're going to, hey, we got a new lieutenant. So let's, we're going to run and we're going to challenge the new guy. Because that's what it was like for me in the 82nd Airborne Division. As a young soldier, when we got a new lieutenant or a new leader, it was put up or shut up. And, if we, and put up or shut up time was at 0630 formation and we were going to run. And so that's what I was expecting. So my first formation as a lieutenant, I'm stretching. I'm, I'm ready to go on this ability group run with these soldiers. And yeah. then the, the sergeant up front says this. He says, if you got a profile and you can't run, I need you to step aside. I'm not really paying attention because I'm 36 years old, Mike, and I'm stretching. These kids are 20. They don't need to stretch. <laughs> it's a, I just so happened to put, pick my eyes up and I looked towards the formation and the formation had moved. There was only two people standing in front of me that were going to run. And the rest of the 40 soldiers were standing off to my left and they could not do PT. Mm. And that was like, that's a leadership challenge. Yeah. That is a leadership challenge. But here's where the leadership challenge comes in, Mike. Just like me, I had to get them to help, to get them to understand that their identity wasn't in the condition that the doctor gave them a report on. And that's what happens. And that's where our veterans are at today. They get a piece of paper, they get a rating, and they make that a, their identity. So what I had to do to those soldiers, because I needed to let them know that they were still effective members of the U.S. Army. And the Army could not be 100% effective what, without them. So what I needed to help them understand is that condition was only temporary and it wasn't their identity. Yeah. I often see it today when you ask a soldier or a veteran, hey, how you doing? I'm a 100% disabled veteran. I'm like, okay, well, my name's John. What's your name? They need to actually make another tab, special forces, ranger, airborne, 100% disabled vet, because that's what people identify with. They don't identify with who they are and their family and the character of who they are or that that precision knife that was formed. Okay, so maybe you got stuck back in the fire. Maybe you feel like you're still being pounded on, but let me say something to you. That process is not your identity. It's, you know, I, I talk to them quite a bit is when they first come on, we onboard, we have the call on and a Zoom call with them. I can't meet all of them like I used to. Can we just have too many? As I, I talk about that is one is that Sentinels of Freedom is not a charity. It's an investment group. We're investing in your future, what you got between your ears and your potential. You have choices. You can let your disability define who you are in the rest of your life. If that's what you want to do, you can do that. That's easy. The government makes it easy for you. They'll send you a check and sit on the porch the rest of your life. Or if you want to go the other way and say, no, I'm not going to let it define who I am. Military service might be a, a cornerstone of their life in the future. And if they look at it in that way, instead of looking at the, at the negative side. And what we found is guys like you, it's amazing. We've gone through so much, taking hard hits. And the minute they get back home, it's a little demoralizing. I mean, just going to college, let's say in your case, been in the Army 20 years. Now think about you've been in the Army five or 10 years, thinking it's going to be your career, and all of a sudden it's cut short. Now you go back, you get the GI Bill, and you start college. And who are you going to college with as a freshman? A bunch of kids right out of high school. Who knows how they even get themselves dressed half the time. And so you don't identify with them, and that's tough because you don't really have anybody to talk to. We've built some student veterans resource on colleges because the student veterans were doing their homework in their cars in the parking lot and not going to the library and, and engaging because... It's not that they thought these other kids were hate them. It's just that they completely understood. These other kids didn't under, understand who they were and what they'd been through. And not like they want to want that affirmation. It's just, hey, a little respect would be nice. And these kids don't know anything. So it's that transition, that first year, for most of the people in our, the veterans in our program, is tough. 
that's a whole, it's a whole new world, right? But understanding it, yeah, I'm proud of my military service. I, I did my job, I did it well, and I can do other jobs well, and I can leverage on that experience. And that's kind of what we preach is don't let your military service drag you back. Shed the skin as much as possible. It'll never leave you. It'll always be there and you can leverage off those experiences in the future. And that's proven to be true with most of the people in the program. And I would say we're a small program, but most veterans that come back don't have the problems that you read in the newspaper every day, homelessness, suicide, all of those things that we read every day in the newspaper. What they don't talk about is the majority of the veterans that come back. They get into school, they get into trade schools, they get a job, they get into education and their career starts. And once it starts, once they get that confidence that they're competitive, they can compete. Why couldn't they compete? I mean, look what they've done already. So carrying that and saying, I've done some pretty tough things in my life. This is not that tough. Your friend, John Walding told me, he said, um, yeah, I want to start my own business. Uh, easy peasy, right? He says, hell, I've been shot at. And then he says, you know what I found out? Starting your own business was harder than getting shot at. <laughs> so, but you come so through, I don't want to focus on the injury or all that stuff. I mean, it's a fact. You get shot and it's a, it will affect you the rest of your life. But you've chosen that Samaritan road to help others. And it's probably been for you very gratifying. I know it has. And it gives you strength in doing that. And that's not for everybody. Not everybody can do what you're doing. So it's a rare, it, it's rarer than people think, uh, but it's there. I mean, you know, churches, ministers, priests, doctors, nurses, even teachers all have that kind of ethos of sharing and giving and educating and helping others. And you've certainly got all of that. Um, well, let, let me say this, Mike, and, and I think that as we talked about that, right, that point right there, I don't want to lose it. And, and this is why I want to say this, because what I realized is this shirt right here says, De oppresso liber, right? It's right. Latin for free the oppressed. That's the Green Beret motto. What I asked, and you kind of alluded to it, that yes, I was shot at Fort Hood, one of the survivors of a second mass shooting on the military base Fort Hood. But let's talk about post-traumatic growth instead of what happened that day, right? Exactly. So, and I will say this, that one of the things that your listeners probably do need to know is that when I was on the ground dying, I heard a voice tell me to get up or my wife would die. So six months before I was shot, my wife lost both her parents nine days apart. Two years before that, she lost her brother in a hunting accident. So it wasn't just the situation that I was dealing with from being shot, but my wife had just lost almost everybody in her household from her uh, immediate household and her family. And so there was a lot of trauma, like a lot of uncertainty. But... I say this, that de oppressed liber means free the oppressed. I believe that I've been called to free the oppressed. That it, then again, I talk about that, that block of uh, steel that was being forged. It was already inside of me to free the oppressed of who I was. It was put into me by my creator and my grandmother just called it out on me. And I became this green beret. And I never quit. And I went back to selection a second time. Why? Because it was already there. So now when you get hit so hard, boom, what was my response was to get up and to go free the oppressed. But the only difference is I don't need to do it in a military uniform because there's a world that's hurting. And so my continued mission is to free the oppressed. It's yeah. to continue to go out and to pull those individuals. Mike, you said it, you're a smaller veterans organization. But there's, why? Because maybe not as many of some of the veteran populations, maybe some of the younger kids, and just actually there's probably no demographic on it, but there's more people that see themselves as that 100% disabled veteran that they can't, they had that failure mentality like I did. Now I've been hit. Now I've been wounded. Now I, I don't have a community. So here I am in college and I'm going to do my homework in my car because I don't have a community. I don't, this happened to me. And so we take on this identity of this happened to me, this happened to me. And I'm not saying what was me, because believe me, those circumstances are real and they're painful. And I see that, which is why I tell my story, which is why my wife and I tell of our experiences of what we've been through 
And I heard this voice tell me when I was on the ground and my life was pouring out. It said, John, get up. And Mike, it was easier to stay on the ground that day. It was, e- I took a 45 that severed my jugular vein. Nobody would have, if I would have stayed on the ground, they would have told my wife that, I mean, Angel, it was a kill shot. Don't worry, John. He didn't suffer at all. He just fell over. He didn't feel no pain, honey. But I would have knew. And I got up. And so what I'm doing today is my message to my veteran community, the message to the youth of this generation is to get up, mm-hmm. is to get up. It, and you know what? Maybe like me, the only thing that you can do is just wake up that day and face that day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what's coming a week from now. It's just face that day. And I'll tell you what, there, if you don't, if you don't have a better life, it's not because, it's not because the opportunities are not there. It's because you didn't take the opportunities. And, and Memorial Day for me, I know a lot of people, they go and they see these names on the wall and they fall out, they fall down and they sometimes think that if I just shed a tear for these people, then I'm honoring them. I'm honoring these veterans. I'm honoring their sacrifice. That's not the way I see it. That's just me. If Don't get me wrong. If that's your son, that's your daughter, your uncle, your grandfather, your, I mean, believe me, that's painful. But this is how John Arroyo, and I think John Wayne says the same thing. This is how I honor the sacrifice of my brothers and sisters that didn't make it home. It's how I live my life. Yeah. I honor their sacrifice on how I live my life and how I treat my family today. So guess what? There's an opportunity to go to college and there's an organization called Sentinels of Freedom that's going to come alongside me. They're going to walk with me through this process and they're going to almost ensure, I yes, I have to do the work, but guess what? Now I have a community. I'm back in that special forces community where people care about me and they care about my success. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I want that. I want that because ultimately it's for me and it's for my family and it's going to better us. And oh, by the way, I got a degree. I got a master's degree where you guys supported me through in nonprofit management. And guess what I'm looking to do? Start a nonprofit. And nonprofit management. Now I got a master's degree in nonprofit management. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to continue to free the oppressed. Why? Because you guys believed in me. And that's what I want these veterans to know is that there's opportunities out there. And if you don't take it, that's your fault. Yeah, there's a point there, John, that, that I, again, on the first onboarding call, I we're building trust there. Typically, it's the first time they've talked to me. And we talk for... 45 minutes, sometimes half an hour, sometimes an hour. But at some point I talked to him about the transition and that there is a syndrome where some of them want, I call it avoidance, where they can possibly get lost because they want to help the guy behind them or they want to help another veteran or somebody else. I'm too busy to help myself because I got to help somebody else. That's avoidance at this point in their life. And, and so what I tell them is, look, right now, this next four years, you, you will never have this opportunity again in your life where you're getting tax-free money to pay for your education. And, and, and so you don't want to squander. It's only so many years of college that the government's going to pay for. So at this point in your life, you have to think about self. And it's not selfish. It's reality and it's survival. So focus on self for right now. You'll be able to do many more things for other people. Once you are to that point where you're hireable and competitive in what you want to do. And so be careful of the balance, uh, is I just talked to another, another one of our sentinels who, uh, left the program voluntarily because he couldn't stay in college. Well, and, and a good guy, a double amputee ranger. And, and I called him and he's moved down to a different area and just this great guy, great soldier. And I said, I'm just following up, see where you are, whether you want to get back into education at some point. And his still, still not totally sure what he wants to do. And, and I have to try and convince him that right now is the time to do it. The longer you wait, 
harder it's going to be. And we're here for you. So you think about it for a week. You, you and your wife talk it over. And I'll call you in about a week and let's see if we can get you back on track here. I mean, he's doing fine. He's not having any big issues, but the point is he's in a dead end job and he's got two little boys and, and I, we want to see him succeed. So we're following up with him. But I, another question I asked John is when you came home to all of them, how much money did you have in your pocket? Most, yeah. most of them hadn't saved anything. And so you've got this period of time where, okay, I've got a few months before I can get in, start college because I'm, I'm coming home off, off semester or find a job or the benefits start rolling in. Most of them will not go and collect their unemployment insurance, even though they need it and they earned it. And so there's an economic factor here that's really can drag somebody backwards, get them into a job that they're just taking because they need a job, has nothing to do about what they want to do. They just need a job. And most of them are low-paid, entry-level, manual jobs. I mean, I'm talking about all, all veterans, not just our wounded veterans. And that's where they need somebody on the ground to guide them and get ready for them to come home. So we're working on a project right now to where we can find not just one of the injured veterans much earlier uh, than we have. And, and, and our greatest opportunity was the hospitals were full. We could go there and we could interview 20 guys in a day and then go to the next hospital and we could start to build that pipeline. Well, now there's nobody in the hospitals. They're very few. Right. And so, so now it's, all right, well, wait a second. Where does the community come in this, involved in this, like we do? Uh, well, we can teach any community to do this, but we still have to know when and who's coming home and what they're looking for. So the idea is before the ETS, before they leave the service, maybe six months to a year, we start communicating and saying, all right, where are you going? What are you thinking of doing? What can we set up for you? So we're setting you up for success and get an idea of where they are, where they're going, and try and find somebody back in that area nearby that's waiting for them when they get there. And of course, it's a 50-50 deal. The veteran has to want to engage. He's got to be motivated. That mentor has to build trust. And now we got a great opportunity for a veteran to succeed. So we're thinking about expanding the operation, not just to, to wounded and injured, but to all veterans coming out. And just so you know, the numbers, 200,000 come out a year, every year is predictable as the sun rising. 16,000 of them are medically retired. Uh, and so for every kind of malady and injury you can imagine, right? So we've always focused on that number and we will continue to do that. But I think we're looking at scaling up to a little, little bigger operation in that fact. And we're going to be very careful about that because I think one of the things that's, that we are so successful at, one of the reasons is we are small and we're very, we have a lot of high touch and I don't want to lose that. So we're going to be very careful about how we do this. And again, who are the veterans we select? Highly motivated, highly motivated, even if they've got their legs ripped off, they know what they got to do. So that's what we've been looking for in Sentinels all these years. And that's what we've pulled into the program. Now there's some that are just lost when they come out. They don't have any money in their pocket. They're going back to the same situation that they left. Like you, mm -hmm. if you were going back to LA, what, what's there? I mean, if you were, excuse me, just a four years infantry guy. Yeah. You might have some leadership skills and, and some discipline, but now you're back into a community that doesn't have either. It doesn't have a need for that because they don't recognize you because you don't have a degree. And you're going back into a community that doesn't speak your language now. Yeah. And so, but you can reassimilate very quickly into that right. same thing and, the, and get right. lost and lose traction. And that's where the community needs to be more involved. And that's what we hope to get going. So along those lines, I've got somebody in San Antonio that wants to talk to you retired colonel that's working with us. And I told him your story and he said, I want to meet him. And I said, all right, I'm going to be talking to him. And he's busy running all over the country giving speeches, but two high quality people. And you think the same and he'd been there, done that. So his name is Mike McDonald or Mike uh, 
McDonald, I think, recently met him, McDowell. But, and he's right there in San Antonio. So those, that's another thing we do is we connect dots. Who's in San Antonio? Who do we is know? He a green, is he a Green Beret colonel? No, he's a colonel, a retired colonel. He teaches at the university there. Okay. Well, uh, uh, I had a battalion commander with last name McDowell. Yeah, I think he's, I think he was in artillery. But in any case, it's all good. I, I want to tell you this story real quick. My funny story. You talked about waterboarding. Your sister waterboarding every morning, throwing a glass of water in your face. I often get asked, how did you ever get three sons to join the Army and get into the Ranger Regiment? And I say, well, this is really of their own volition. I just supported them. I made sure that they had thought it out. They had as much information as they could get going in. And uh, even then, my oldest son told me, I, I knew a little bit about the Rangers, but he really didn't know the whole scope of it, right? But, but, and then I say, the other thing is, I think they just wanted to get away from me, get out of the house, because I had rules, right? But we're talking about waterboarding. These guys, I mean, they get up in the morning or whenever they take a shower, and they take like an hour-long shower, completely drain the water heater. And so I'd open the door and throw a glass of cold water on them to get out of there, right? So I was kind of waterboarding them back this too. That's game. I actually, Chris, I'll send you the link to it. Chris, they, somebody has a podcast, special operations podcast, and he had all three. He said the first time he's ever done it, he had all three of my sons do it about a week ago, and I think it's going to be available Saturday, so I'll send it to you. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, let me sign off here, and then we can talk on the other side of this a bit. But John, well, I just I, want to thank everybody for, for coming on. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for stepping forward and serving our nation, and which ultimately benefits our nation and our levels of quality of life, our freedoms, all of that. It's all, nobody can uh, discount that or disagree with that. It's a fact. And so thank you for that. And, and I'm very proud of you where you're going and what you've been doing and, and anything on the, on the foundation side, any questions you got, you can call me and I'll give you the straight dope. Um, but I, I applaud you for doing that too and wish you all the best in that. And you guys are just uh, guys and gals, amazing people. And our, our country depends on you and what you come bring back to our communities is even of more value or equal value. So this is Mike Conklin and Captain John Arroyo U.S. Army retired, signing off. Have a great day. Please share this this video with your friends and family. Sometimes they're short, sometimes they're a little longer. Doesn't matter. Take take little bites at it if you'd like. But it is inspiring for all of us. So thank you, John and Mike Conklin, John Arroyo, signing off. Thank you.